Having beefed up Burnley and kept them afloat for years, Sean Dyche is back in the Premier League. Everton, the only top-flight side who didn't sign a new player in January, so the flame-haired firebrand has to work with what he's got. The first test? Oh, yes. Nice, easy one. Up against title-chasing Arsenal. I'm Kevin Hatchard, and this is Football Only Better. We didn't need any new players in January either. Delighted to say, betting guru Marco Hare's with us once again. Mark Everton fans pretty disappointed not to see any positive change in the squad, especially after Anthony Gordon left to join Newcastle. But how does Dyche's arrival, in your view, change the relegation battle in general? Well, according to the market, not a huge amount. I don't think Everton's prices has has changed dramatically um, in the last week or so. Uh, it's kind of chopped up and down a little bit, depending where you look. But um, I think from an Everton perspective, if we look at it just purely on Everton basis, I think they've got a better chance of staying up with Sean Dyche at the helm than, than Frank Lampard. I think most people would suggest that too. Clearly, the issues behind the scenes at Everton uh, are, are the bigger issue at play here. The fact that the final two in the candidates would be Elsa and Dyche I think tells you everything you need to know about. <laughs> couldn't get but more different, really. It's, could literally couldn't. Um, it was, uh, you know, kind of tells you everything. But I think they have stumbled across the right decision here. Uh, Bielsa, I think, as a long-term appointment, would appeal. But right now, I think Everton are in huge danger, uh, not just in terms of their Premier League survival, but in terms of their, their actual existence. Um, huge amounts of sums pumped into the stadium project, the financial pressures around the club that would come with relegation on top of that. Um, you know, it's quite scary to think of, really. And um, I think from an Everton perspective, you need to think of Dyche as a kind of mid- medium-term appointment. Try and survive relegation this year try and consolidate next year and then perhaps if Bielsa still fancies it in a couple of years time go that way or potentially go for a, a younger option in a similar vein but um yeah that, that's that's my theory but um I actually think Dyche was the best candidate from the outset anyhow um I think he gets a bit of a bad rep because of his style of football which he, he says himself isn't necessarily the way he wants to play football but is the hand that was dealt to them with, with Burnley. You know, they were fighting against a much richer, much stronger opponent. So he had to find a, a system to suit with uh, the budget he was given. And it's quite often forgotten. Burnley quite often stayed up quite comfortably. Not just that, they actually got into Europe under his yep. stewardship. <laughs> it was f- by far a failure. The fact that Burnley went down in his final year when he didn't actually take charge of the whole season shouldn't be used as a slight against him at all. He was an overwhelming success, uh, a remarkable success, a huge underdog success. And um, I think there is potential for Everton to to improve upon where they are right now. I still think, you know, taking a step back, the bottom three right now will be the bottom three. Uh, I can make stronger claims for everyone else. But I do think there's players in that squad in Everton right now who Daesh can mould to his preferred style, if you like. You know, Cody and Tarkovsky at centre-half. You probably couldn't meet two more Daesh-like players. Pickford between the sticks we know is decent. McNeil's there. Calvert-Lewin, a revived Iwobi. The, the squad is lacking standout quality, of course it is, but... There is a certain ability there um, which can compete at this level. And um, just, yeah, fascinated to see how they set up, who he picks this weekend against Arsenal. Because, as you say, it couldn't meet a a stronger opponent, a team who's won 16 of the first 19 matches. But uh, I think Dyche and Everton will look to turn this game 
into a complete dog of a match and you spoiling tactics from the off. I think there'll be a hunger and desire to get in their faces, make life difficult. All the old sort of Burnley stereotypes will come to the fore. And I think if the board do stay away from Goodison Park this weekend and the crowd get behind Dyche as they should do, um, you know, the, it might be. It wouldn't be the huge surprise as the Everton pick up something from this match. So um, I'm happy to leave the game against Arsenal alone just because the new manager bounce, you know, it, whether it's a theory or whether it's true or not, um, I do sometimes subscribe to it, especially so when there's been a real obvious leap up in, in ability between the predecessor and the current coach, which I do think we have here between Lampard and Dyche, because not just what Dyche achieved at Burnley, but even at Watford, his body of work stands up much, much stronger to anything Lampard's ever achieved. So it has to be a positive for Everton. And as metaphorically, of course, Frank Lampard lies bleeding on the floor. We've already kicked him a couple of times in this show already. Uh, the dashing doctor of data will see you now. Jake Oscarthorpe from InfoGoal in the starting side. Jake Arsenal, the clear favourites here at 1.46. I was going to ask you, does Dyche's arrival complicate things? But firstly, uh, your last opportunity to have a go at Lampard before we move on. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've kind of covered it very well over the last year and a half that he was, yeah, just generally massively out of his depth when it comes to managing the football team. Um, at that so, level, so well, far. not even at that level. I, you know, even at the championship, I know he got Derby to the playoffs, but the squad and the starting eleven he had there was, you know, they should have gone up automatically, probably even won the title. Uh, a half decent manager probably would have seen them up automatically, um, and then you know Chelsea. The first season, he did a decent enough job. I mean, I think it kind of helped him in the sense that there was no expectation because they had the transfer ban. So he had to use the young players. So it was almost like a free hit. Uh, he did a decent enough job. And as soon as it came to recruiting and buying players and, you know, actually having to work manager you know, egos, if you like, with the bigger stars coming in, uh, that became a problem. Um, and yeah, Everton, it's, it's, it never really looked like it was going to work. Uh, the back end of last season, they kind of got a little bit going at Goodison Park in the sense that they were very dogged, hard to beat. Um, was that led by tell. the situation, though? They were desperately fighting relegation. 100%. They got the crowd on side. That, that wasn't any coaching genius, though, was it really? No, no, it wasn't. It was very much a, this is what we need to do to survive. Uh, and then you kind of saw at the start of this season, Lampard trying to implement what is his preferred style of play, which is to be a bit more attack-minded. And, you know, even that is, you know, it's not just as easy as saying, right, that's off you go, go out and play. You've got to set up a platform at the back to try and, you know, otherwise you're just going to end up with these end-to-end -end games and ultimately you've not got as much quality as other teams. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit, um, yeah, just a bit in over his head, really, I think. Um, and, when, and, and obviously the pressure told towards the end, the fans approaching him, uh, you know, bless it. I, I you know, I, he, you just you don't want to see stuff like that. He looked petrified in that video before that West Ham game. He looked absolutely terrified, um, and you know rightly so because that those kind of you saw what happened the week before uh, with the fans and Gary Mina and Anthony Gordon and um, you know that you, you don't want to see see anybody go through that. But um, I do think that the, that Daesh is for me anyway is the best appointment available for this Everton team. Um, you look at the squad. And I think it's a very Dyshian squad. I think it's something that he could do a lot with. Um, as Mark's already said, there's, there's a couple of decent pieces for the jigsaw. The, the, there's no standout players that you go, wow, they're fantastic. But then again, you look at Dyshian's Burnley and there's no standout players. It was more of a team. Um, and, and Everton just kind of got themselves in a bit of a problem where they need a project guy to move things forward and, and you know, try and do what Brentford and Brighton are doing. 
but they also need a firefighter. Um, and ultimately, it's very difficult to get someone that's going to do both. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the short-term appointment of Daesh is, is a really, really strong one. The main issue I've, been, I've had so far this season, based on the data, is that defensively they are shocking. They are one yeah. of the worst, if not the worst, in the league. Um, and, you know, Daesh at Burnley, he he managed to get them performing at a mid-table to lower mid-table level from a defensive process standpoint in his... Every single season they were in the Premier League. Um, well, wasn't that to do with limiting the quality of opposition shots? That was a big deal, wasn't it? Like shot locations, quality of chances to the opposition. Absolutely, yeah. Um, which obviously helps when you play so deep. Um, you, you know, you get so many bodies behind the ball that it, it does reduce the post-shot XG of the, the attempts that teams are taking. Um, and, and I can see that working very well. Um, for, for this Everton team because they've got people like Cody and Tarkovsky who are used to that kind of style. You know, that Cody at Wolves was used to playing quite deep in a, in a back five effectively and, and Wolves playing on the counter. Um, and yeah, you, in, in the net, you've got Pickford who is one of the better shot stoppers in the league generally from distance. Um, and yeah, that, that, you know, I still would rank Nick Pope slightly ahead, but you know, you look at what Pope did at Burnley, the shots that he did have to face were either deflected, um, you know, some of the sting was taken off them by the, the defenders back there. The angles were tightened because of the, the amount of bodies that were in the way. And it just made his life a little bit easier. So I think we'll, we'll see generally a defensive improvement from Everton. Um, and, you know, it's small things, but you just love the fact that Daesh has gone in there. And the first thing he's done in training is, right, lads, everyone's wearing, wearing shin pads. Wear shin pads, roll your socks up. Like, this is going to be serious training. Yeah, there's not there's none of the fancy tip tap. That's it's exactly what you want to see from a team that's in a relegation battle. It's right now we're getting physical. This is about this is how we're progressing, and I think this is a tricky game for Arsenal. Um, uh, like Mark said, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit of an upset and Everton managed to get a result. I think if they are to get a result, it's going to come in a very low scoring game, um, and that's the kind of angle that I've taken from a betting perspective here which is to take the under two and a half goals. Um, I think on the exchange right now, it's around 2.08. I think that's a huge price. Um, you know, like, like we've, we've, we've discussed, Daesh is a defensive first coach. Um, he is going to go in there, try and make things very difficult. But then on the flip side, you've got an Arsenal team who, you know, they've been really good away from home. Like the, the transformation season on season away from home is just ridiculous, really. Um, so last season they were averaging plus uh, minus 0.38 expected goal difference per away game. And this season they're at plus 0.79. So you've seen almost a full goal, full goal. yeah, yeah, improvement, which is just remarkable. Um, the key being that they're defensively the best away team in the league. They can't even fewest amount of chances of any team when they travel. Um, but yeah, they're, tight, they're tighter on the road than they are at home. They don't score as many goals. They don't blow teams out. Uh, and the Unders actually landed in 60% of Arsenal away games, which I thought was quite an interesting stat to to throw in the mix here as well. So everything for me points to kind of a, a low-scoring game, whether that be, you know, 1-1 or if Arsenal are grinding out a 1-0 win, um, the kind of results I can see happening. Trader and tipster extraordinaire, Emmett O'Keefe, part of the All-Star team today. Emmett, should other teams in the relegation battle be seriously concerned by Sean Dyche's arrival at Goodison Park? I think so. I would I would echo everything the lads have said there. It's um I think it's I think he possibly could be the right man at the right time in the sense that 
this is an Everton squad that might suit his strengths as a manager. Just if you look at, if you said to me, I know Everton have a limited squad, what are the strengths of the squad? I'd say probably centre-back with Yerry Mina, Godfrey, Cody, Tarkowski. Could you make a decent back three out of that? I would say yes. And uh, Amadou Onana in midfield, who I think is legitimately like top 10, maybe top seven-ish hold, holding midfielder. And then Jordan Pickford in goal. So while... If I was an Everton fan, I probably would have wanted Bielsa as a kind of a as, as a fan of that type of football. I think in terms of their chances of staying up, I think Sean, d- despite Everton's dodgy process, I think they, they 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 likely have ended up with the with the right man here. And if you just think back to the Dyche's Burnley teams, if you said to me what was the main weakness of those teams, was one was up front. They used to have these like very immobile strikers. You're thinking Ashley Barnes, Chris Wood. So sometimes, especially in the latter parts of his tenure, teams could kind of pen them in, press them in, and they couldn't really get out. They didn't have an outlet. If he can get Dominic Calvert-Lewin playing, he's the player. He'll fit the dice doll to a glove in that. He has that aerial power, but he also has the mobility to kind of get, to kind of break a team out and transition and be kind of a really good hold-up player. We haven't seen that Dominic Calvert-Lewin for a while, but if we if, if Dyche can get him playing back to when he was kind of an England squad member, I, 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 I think Everton could definitely go close. If you look, if you look down at the bottom as well, like I think, I think, I think, I think Southampton are potentially doomed. I think there's because then there's if 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 Dyche can even get Everton playing to a kind of a, a kind of a one point two points a game for the rest of the season. If they can get to maybe thirty eight points, I think that'll probably be enough to stay up. So yeah, I would, I would, despite Everton not signing players in in the window on the kind of the. The kind of the, the the mocking of them, but based on that, I, I, I still think that more important than that is the Dyche edition, and I think he can he can potentially max out kind of a limited group of players. There is an argument that his career at Burnley had a kind of an Eddie Howe like trajectory. I think Eddie Howe was a more progressive coach at, at Bournemouth than uh, Dyche was at Burnley, but in terms of like Dyche was consistently overperforming. Overperforming Burnley for a small club for 30 years before eventually the luck ran out, similar to what Howe did at Bournemouth. And then we've seen when Howe actually has a better team and Howe obviously developed as a coach in terms of kind of visiting other clubs and he's clearly improved his defensive coaching since then. But I think there's, I think that like overall, if you look at Dyche's body of work at Burnley, it was superb. And if he can maybe develop a couple of sides of his coaching, there's no reason he couldn't progress at a, I think at in terms of Everton, it's probably a good time to be taking over and that expectations couldn't be lower. Um, in terms of this game, the one angle I think is interesting is the Thomas Partey factor. He's a doubt to play here with a hamstring injury. And if you just look back at, kind of a, there's a decent sample size of games now where he hasn't played for Arsenal. In the games he has played in Arsenal's last 39 games he's played, they've got 90 points. So that's like 2.3 points a game, very much kind of title challenging form. And the game's he hasn't played. That's I think there's yeah, it's around 17 games. They're averaging one point around 1.6 points a game per game, which is kind of like a big drop, top, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We're talking like kind of a down to kind of a seventh place level team. Maybe there's some noise in those statistics in terms of they could have played harder teams when um when Parley hasn't played. But I, I think anyone who watches Arsenal this season knows how important he is to the team in the sense of pushing Granite Xhaka forward into that kind of into that attacking position and kind of taking Xhaka away from his worst instincts as a holding midfielder in terms of hacking guys down and being rash. <laughs> and, Just being Granite Xhaka, generally. Yeah, yeah. and like the, I think 
like, I'm not saying Arsenal had to break the bank here and do a Chelsea, but like, if they'd signed Moises Caicedo, I would have changed their rating for the Premier League in terms. Of, I would have. I think. I think, that, I think they would have been a pretty strong favourite if they'd gotten him. I think he's a superb player, and he would have actually potentially improved their starting eleven. Whereas I think Jorginho and the players they've signed are kind of more depth players. And like I think Jorginho is a useful player, kind of a decent stopgap, but like he's not Thomas Partey. And I think their their midfield and defensive unit will definitely be will, will definitely be weaker this weekend if Partey doesn't play. And and yeah, I'd be hesitant to throw Arsleniak because given the potential potential dice factor in Partey not playing. I do wonder if Jorginho in terms of mentality might make a big difference there. They've got guys like Gabriel Jesus and Alexander Zinchenko who have won major trophies, but Jorginho coming in, I don't think will do much harm considering the young players they have in that squad. Now, it's worth bearing in mind we're making a few changes to our great daily offers here at Betfair. You now have to opt in to promotions to enjoy the rewards available on the Sportsbook and Exchange. You can opt in quickly and easily by clicking a promotional banner or going straight to the promotions page and clicking opt in. There is a step-by-step guide on betting.betfair.com. Now, Southampton did make some interesting signings on deadline day. They brought in the prolific Nigerian striker Paul Onoachu. They brought in the Ghanaian winger Kamaldine Suleimana. They visit Brentford on Saturday. Jake, how do you see this one going and what do you make of Southampton right now? Because the way Nathan Jones started, utterly atrocious. But slowly but surely, he started to turn it round. Um, I don't know if turn it round is the right words. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, they, they, they started badly. They've not really improved much. They've only won one Premier League game um, since his appointment, which is obviously why they're still popping up the table. Uh, I like the business that they've done. I think they, they, on the eye test, they are looking better. Um, but I still think that there's a lot of improvement required if they are to, to you know, climb out of trouble. Um, I think this is a really tough game for them. You know, this is... Not only is it Brentford, who I think I've said on you know multiple times on this podcast that Brentford for me are a must back home team when the price is right, and I think the price is right here. Uh, we're getting one point nine four on the exchange, which I think is huge. You know, I think we've seen Brentford go off a lot shorter um, at home this season, even against you know like Bournemouth. They were six to ten at home. Um, are Bournemouth that much worse than Southampton? Probably not. I probably have this price around 1.8. So the fact you get 1.94 um, is is massive. Um, you, you factor in loads of things from Brentford in terms of at home. Five wins, four draws um, out of 10. 1.87 expected goals for 1.3 against, which is one of the better home processes in the, in the entire league. And they've not played for two weeks. So they, they, they actually take to the field against Southampton having two weeks off. Effectively, to get you know back to full fitness, to they'll be extremely sharp. Uh, and Southampton have played pretty much every three days in in that period, which you know it's going to take its toll on on, on a team that is effectively quite a small squad. Um, uh, and yeah, I, like I said, Southampton they're looking a bit better. <coughs> they beat who won the last away game in the league against Everton, but you know that was an Everton team that I think we can all agree was effectively a you know inverted commas get right game for anybody who. Were struggling. I think Wolves went. Wolves beat them, didn't they? Southampton beat them. West Ham, who were struggling, beat Everton. So I don't think we can read too much into a victory over that Everton. And this is a much tougher test. So I'm all over Brentford here um, to to win. And you know, I was 
having an interesting conversation with a colleague earlier. It's just everyone's talking about Brighton and how brilliant Brighton are, and you know they're absolutely flying. What they're doing is incredible. Brentford are a point behind Brighton. They're just like completely going under the radar. Um, you know, pre-season Brentford were down as maybe were they third favourites for relegation, something like that. Um, and there's not enough being made of the kind of performances that they're putting up, and, and you know the, the remarkable continuity in which they're showing, like from season on season, to to, to do what they're doing. They're currently above both Liverpool and Chelsea. You know, the expected goal difference has them, you know, about where they are right now, eighth. So you know, looking like a top half finish. And yeah, I, I just think that they deserve a little bit more respect, and I think that that includes from the bookmakers because I, I don't think they've shown them enough respect this weekend. Yeah, Emmett. Guys like you, that's who he's talking about. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you share that view? Do you think Brentford are the bet here? Yeah, I'd echo, echo everything Jake said there. Just to kind of, yeah, just like I think outside of the kind of the, the cup performances for Nathan Jones to me feel like more of an outlier and just their league performances. Like we haven't seen the progression, the league performance that you'd like to see. Um, like even the, the one game they won in in in, uh, in the six Premier League games he's had away at Everton, they lost the expected goals battle and were kind of reliant on an incredible free kick from War Prowse. Like not yeah. like yeah, if you're losing the XG battle and relying on War War Prowse free kick against an absolute hapless Everton team, like it's not that that's not something to kind of hang your hat on or say is kind of sustainable. And last week at home to Villa, Villa a useful side, but like if you're in a relegation battle and you're kind of you're hoping to get out of it. You, you you have to be expecting we'll say not 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 like not to definitely get a result but at least be competitive on the xg and make it a real battle and they comfortably lost the xg villa had the better chances and it was kind of, and they kind of went down meekly at home to villa one nil like that that, that that just that just looks like a team to me they're doomed for relegation the new signings as you mentioned might might make some difference but overall as as jake said i i I think Brighton look a pretty solid betting proposition when I price the game with them closer to yeah, 183-ish. So I'm happy, happy to take the 195 in the exchange. Newcastle made it through to the League Cup final in midweek. They're continuing to have an incredible season under Eddie Howe and they were fairly circumspect in the transfer market, bringing in Anthony Gordon, but they haven't spent all of that uh, Saudi money so far. They face relegation threat in West Ham this weekend. Mark, is this going to be straightforward home win or is the story a little more complicated than that? No, I, I want to be with Newcastle. Um, feels like something special is brewing around Newcastle right now. And I think the fans know it as well, the way in which they celebrated reaching Wembley. Uh, they're moving at a faster pace than, than I probably ever anticipated after the takeover and doing it all um, without that major investment, which we all perhaps expected. You know, there's not been any sort of mad superstar signings on huge paychecks. It's been kind of incremental, really. And I think the, the biggest compliment you can give is Eddie Howe's just worked minor miracles on, on improving players that were there before him, um, integrating the new signings basically ticking all the boxes. He's been there about 15 months. They're already in a cup final and on course for a top four finish as well. So um, just just uh, hugely impressive what he's managed to achieve there in such a short space of time. And, and they're there on merit too. They're in the top four and expected points. Third, when you look at XP uh, at home as well. And it all stems from that exceptional defence, which is 
It's just extraordinary the figures that they're, they're turning out. 12 clean sheets and 20 Premier League games this season. It's quite incredible, really. Um, six on the spin. They've kept seven shutouts in 10 at home. Exclude the game against Man City. And they've conceded two goals in nine home league games this season. So just extraordinary, really. Are a, slight, a couple of slight concerns. Um, I'm of the opinion that uh, you know the midweek cup game would act as a positive, um, a bit more momentum going in their favour rather than any sort of negative um, drop uh, fallbacks after that. But obviously, obviously, Bruno Guimaraes' suspension is is a blow. Um, he is very important to them. But uh, I think when I look at Newcastle, the only slight concerns I ever have is do they have enough penetration, invention, craft to unlock defences. I normally say yes, there is. The issue I tend to have is are they clinical enough to take those opportunities when they come in tight matches? And there's been occasions when they haven't been so. So that is a slight concern. But I, I just think I look at West Ham. We talked about their underperformance before the Everton game. That was a really significant win for them and David Moyes. But I thought there was an element of fortune about Jared Bowen's goals. Um, they did look a little bit livelier in the final third. But beating Everton at home, as the guys have already discussed under Frank Lampard, isn't the biggest feather in your cap. Going to a vociferous St. James's Park is going to be a much sterner test. And, and this is normally where West Ham crumble. Um, their away record is wretched. They've they've won, they're, well, they're winless in eight. They've lost six of those. They've only scored six away goals all season. And if we go back to the start of last season, West Ham have played 13 games away at top half teams last season or top half teams this season. They're winless in all 13. They've lost 12 of those 13 matches, which to me suggests there's something negative behind the scenes, something ingrained in the mental approach to these kind of fixtures. So again, going to St. James's Park, which is going to be absolutely buzzing, is going to be a difficult prospect. So um, obviously Newcastle to win the match is quite short, but we can chuck in an unders angle as well. Um, I think only four of the combined 40 Premier League games have featured five or more goals. Only five of West Ham's matches have gone over two and a half goals, let alone uh, five or more. So we can add a Newcastle under, under four and a half goals. You can get that about 1.8 uh, on the sports book, which did stand out to me. Uh, nine of West Ham's 12 defeats this season have been 1 0 or 2 0. They've lost by a 1-0 margin five times away from home already. So you can even go under three and a half if you like for a, for a bigger price. But um, I'd also just wait until the Sportsbook offers some foul prices uh, and back Newcastle to win under four and a half goals and Lucas Pakatar to commit at least one foul. Um, just to boost the price up, you'll get better than evens on that. Uh, Pakatar's committed at least one foul in every game bar one since he's come into the West Ham team. Yeah, Emmett was having a good old smirk at that Pakitar pick. I think he very much uh, agreed with that one. It is a strange thing with West Ham because you think David Moyes, we think of him as somebody who can set up a team defensively, but his record away to top teams is utterly atrocious. Uh, worth bearing in mind, you can get a completely free £2 bet builder on any English Premier League game this weekend. T's and C's in the description, 18+. plus. See gambleaware.org. Liverpool recently went to Wolves and won in the FA Cup, but can they repeat the trick in the league? Emmett, they certainly need to, because even if they've made some small strides performance-wise recently, they're still losing games and conceding goals. Yeah, that's it. Um, pretty simple. I, I, I can't see how Liverpool are, are short as they are here um, for, for, I think... I think any listener, any listener to the podcast will will be aware how kind of mediocre Liverpool are playing, and then losing Ibrahim Kamata is a huge loss. Like the no Van Dijk, no Kanate. Like what are Liverpool good at now? Like the, what is this Liverpool team yeah. good at? Like they've they've they, they've a soft centre, they've a soft centre defence. Obviously they they're strong in the full back positions, but like if you look at the the spine of the team, centre half, centre midfield, they, they they can't press and they can't really defend. Like it's just 
it's not something you really be positive. And there is like the, I think when I wouldn't rule out kind of the late season push from Liverpool in the sense of I do think when when they get maybe if, if Diaz and Yata come back, you do have kind of a range of attacking options. But this Liverpool setup just looks this isn't the Liverpool of years past. Like it, there's no Michael Edwards there. Obviously, their analytics staff have left. And if you look at that team, like there's you don't need to be a football genius to know Liverpool shouldn't have been signing Cody Gakpo. They should have been signing a midfielder. Like there's no there's no ifs, no buts. Like there's relying on Badgetic, Elliot, etc. But like, isn't this a team thing as well? Because I I I take the point that they do need reinforcements in that area and we all know what they're up to they're obviously hoping to sign Jude Bellingham in the summer that's no secret but this is a team thing right because this whole thing has been built on intensity it's all been built on a press that is swarming if that's not happening at the front it's sure as hell not happening in midfield and then if you're going to play that high defensive line which always does then you're going to get opened up every time. So I get it. I understand why people are saying about the midfield. But I also understand why he hasn't wanted to block guys like Carvalho and Elliot from getting minutes because you have to at least see if they're going to be any good going forward. I think we've seen that with Curtis Jones. He's had his chance. I don't think he's quite up to it. But I think with the other guys, they're seeing if that works. But I do think it's more of a team thing. I think bringing in Sofian Amrabat for a few months, fine. But I don't think that would have been as transformational as people think. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not saying he's like they're they're suddenly going to turn into a solid defensive unit. It's more like, like if you just do a cold, if if you do a cold analysis of what the squad is lacking. It's a midfielder. It's not a forward. I think that's that. That's the. That's more just the the thinking. I, I. I just. I think like it's more as well. If you look at the Liverpool hit rate on signings under the Edwards kind of stewardship, it was absolutely incredible. It was. It was the like. It, it was. It's kind of nearly had some ways hard to separate who was more responsible for Liverpool's success, Klopp or Edwards. I think they worked in tandem where Klopp's getting the most out of players and Edwards and Edwards and Liverpool analytics staff are picking the right players, but. All indications are that um, the analytic staff and like it was the Darwin Nunes was, was a Klopp signing that hasn't worked that hasn't been a qualified. I think he's been Nunes has been decent. That he may improve in, in in kind of in, in time to come, given with some more finishing luck. But just it's more saying this isn't the Liverpool club of years past, where we can bank on a really solid tra- transfer strategy and really good decision making, which allowed them to overperform their um, their kind of net spend and wage bill. And I think I, I think that just that. And I think we're kind of seeing that kind of out in the pitch, and just in terms of kind of the the more the more current current thing, like Liverpool's match price against Chelsea really drifted, kind of alarmingly. They went off kind of over evens um, on the exchange against Chelsea, which would be hard to imagine. A couple of months ago, Chelsea badly outplayed them. Well, not badly outplayed them, but Chelsea certainly outplayed them at home again, which would be quite worrying. And then I think Wolves, again, are just a team that I've kind of improved their rating a bit the last few weeks. Just I think this team, I think, in the second half of the season will be more of a, I think a mid-table team just because they were crying out for a kind of attacking punch in the first half of the season. They've signed Sarabia and Matthias Cunha, which I think at least give them competence there. And, and with Julian Lopetegui there, I think they have an improvement in manager for, for, from Bruno Lager. So all told, given everything... we. Uh, 
uh, give it, I think I think just I, I think Liverpool should be closer to maybe two twenty five to two thirty eight. That they shouldn't be a shade of odds on here. So Wolves double chance the way I'd go. Yeah, Jake. I know Liverpool won a Molyneux recently in the cup, and Wolves were dreadful in that game. It was very Liverpool weren't much better. Yeah, true. Um, I, I'm with Emmett here. I I can't see how that price for Liverpool is attached to reality in any way, shape, or form. No, I think that, that makes it a hat trick because I'm completely baffled. Um, yeah, everything Emmett said around Liverpool is 100% right, in my opinion. I think the transfer business in the January is was just completely far-fetched and, and just not what they needed at all. And it's ultimately it's weakened the whole team by not bringing in the midfielder. Um, and the reason I say that is because the midfield is the main issue. And the midfield's job when Klopp's team's working well is to protect the defence and cover the fullbacks. They're not doing that. Which means that the fullbacks aren't pushing on as high because they're worried about no one being able to cover them, which is then leading to them creating less chances. Um, so it's just a complete domino effect where everything's gone wrong. And we've seen a real deterioration in the attacking process over the last six games, which is a massive concern for me because the only reason that they were in the top half was because of their attacking process. The defensive process was relegation, really. I think I've already spoken about this before. Um, and yeah, like, like I said, over the last six matches, across all competitions, they've averaged just 1.09 expected goals for per game, which is just really, really poor for a team of Liverpool stature and, uh, you know, the, of what we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, that actually included them, they created just 1.3 expected goals across two matches against Wolves in the FA Cup. So not just one, that was across two matches. Um, and yeah, what, what, you know, just to put it in perspective, the 1.09 for the last six, the previous six, they'd averaged 2.2 expected goals for the game. So it's basically halved the attacking output um, from a six-game spell to the, the following six, which is just a remarkable fourth, really. Um, you know, there's a lot of people saying that they're not playing the players in the right position. Gakpo needs to be playing on the left and Nunez needs to play down the middle and, the, you know, that kind of thing. But it just comes down to the fact that they've not got a midfield that they trust. Um, you know, injuries have played a part. Obviously, they're missing a couple of players for injury. But They've just not performed at the level that they have over the last couple of years, um, and that's making the whole team dysfunctional. Um, you know, you factor in everything I've said there about the attack, the defence, just some figures there. When travelling, they've averaged two expected goals against per game. So away from home, they are one of the most you know, easily exposed teams in the league when it comes to defending. And the record when travelling is just atrocious this season. You know, won two, drawn two, and lost five. That's not what you'd expect from a team that racked up over 90 points last season uh, and was close to doing a quadruple. So the drop-off, I think, is, you know, it, it's pretty remarkable from, a, you know, from what this point a year ago, we were, you know, the quadruple was on. They were looking like they were going to win the Premier League title before City picked them. Uh, and a year on, they are looking like a team that will finish in the bottom half if they don't smarten themselves up. Um, yeah, I, I like what I've seen from Wolves under Lopetegui. I thought in the two games against Liverpool, you know, particularly at Anfield, I thought they were excellent. Um, even at Molyneux, I thought they were the better team. They actually limited Liverpool to just 0.14 expected goals in that game. So I think they only had a couple of shots and one of them was a Harvey Elliott rocket from out of nowhere, basically. Uh, I can see them doing similar because Wolves are a team under Lopetegui that are a defensive first team, but they've now got more quality in midfield and forward areas to be able to progress the ball a faster rate, which should help them, um, you know, create chances on on the break in, in a quick transition. So, yeah, I'm I'm like Emmett and yourself, Kev. I'm all over Wolves um, 
plus naught on the Asian handicap, which was 2.04. Like, that just seemed really big because, like like Emma, I actually rate Wolves like a mid-table team. So, you know, and, and Liverpool, for me, are probably eighth, ninth best team in the league right now, the way in which they're playing, at best, maybe even worse. Um, so the fact we're getting an odds against Price, what I see is a, you know, a bet that should probably be closer to around a 1.85 mark, I think, is a is a really interesting one. Well, what a thoroughly uplifting episode for Liverpool fans this has been. Uh, let's take it to the Bundesliga in Germany. Mark Union Berlin passed up the chance to sign Isco and then promptly made it through to the last day of the German Cup, which is very like them. Um, they've got Mainz this Saturday. Somewhat surprising to me, given Union's amazing home record, to see them trading at a shade of odds against here. I'm glad you said that because Union Berlin are the bet here for me. Um, very surprised to see them at evens or better. Uh, I think it has to be a bet. Um, if people aren't sort of familiar with, with the Bundesliga this season, I think it's just extraordinary to see Union just one point behind Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga title race after 18 games. They're the closest challengers to Bayern, which is just completely ludicrous. They're in a different stratosphere altogether in almost every different facet you can look at football or a football club. Uh, and sure, Bayern haven't been the, the relentless beast we've come to expect and there's been a few hiccups since the break, but um, Union have just been been a dream to follow this season. Um, of course, the underlying data suggests they've overperformed, but I don't think their style suits IXG numbers in the same way that Man City or Bayern would rack them up. They're more about uh, set-piece efficiency, just keeping things tight, a resolute rear guard, a side that works their socks off, takes their opportunities when they come. Just a very awkward team to play against. I think that might be... Is that fair, Kev? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and a great example of that, actually, was the home game against Hoffenheim recently because Hoffenheim outplayed them in the first half, probably deserved to lead. And then it got really snowy in the second half. The crowd got going and Union just blitzed them in the second half. And Hoffenheim tried and tried to defend, just crumbled, conceded a couple of set-piece goals and a breakaway. And that's what they do to you. They'll go through games where you think they haven't played that well. Oh, they won 2-1. It happens all the time. And so, yeah, I, I think they've got that ability to really... Urs Fischer's a genius, an, an absolute genius. I mean... You look at some of the teams that are up there in the Bundesliga, the coaches of the stars, Christian Streich at Freiburg, absolute genius, and Urs Fischer the same at Union, and they do defy the data to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the way in which they, they win matches. I thought last weekend's Derby win against Hertha probably followed a similar pattern because they weren't massively inspiring, at least in the first 45 minutes, but they managed to get the job done quite convincingly in the end. And that's three wins on the spin now since the World Cup break in the Bundesliga. They've scored twice in each of them, uh, as well as that Cup win midweek as well. And they're playing a Mainz team who played on the Wednesday night rather than the Tuesday night and got absolutely battered by Bayern, a bit of a, a sort of bite back from Bayern in that game. Uh, so the Wednesday to Saturday turnaround is is obviously quite short for Mainz. Uh, Union continue to be at home. They've won six of eight unbeaten games at home. They've already beaten Leipzig, Dortmund, Gladbach and Wolfsburg at home. Bayern were held to a draw there as well. They scored twice or more in seven of those eight. And if we go back to the start of last season, they got a 64% win record at home in the Bundesliga. 16 wins, seven draws and just two defeats. Those defeats came against Bayern and Dortmund last season, who ended up being the top two in the league. So yeah, Mainz hammered Bochum 5-2 at home last season, but everyone knows Bochum are woeful travellers. So useless. Wouldn't, on wouldn't the read too much into that. useless. <laughs> uh, and that was Mainz's only uh, their fourth league win since August as well. So um, yeah, evens or better on Union just, just screams off the page to me. 
Yeah, I couldn't believe that either. Uh, I'm happy to back Borussia Mönchengladbach, by the way. Minus one on the Asian handicap against Schalke on Saturday evening at 1.88. I'll be doing that game uh, on the uh, commentary world feed. Schalke rock bottom. Only taken two points on the road all season. It's a second division squad, really. They've got no money. Gladbach looked really sharp in their 4-1 win at Hoffenheim last weekend. And they've been very, very good at home under Daniel Farker. So I think that's going to be a home win and a comfortable one as well. Emmett, you've got a Bundesliga pick too. Yeah, so we've this uh, kind of a goal score selection for Eintracht, uh, Eintracht Frankfurt against Hertha Berlin. Yeah, thank you. I think anyone who watched the the World Cup final remember Randall Colomwani's performance. It was really him and Eduardo Camavinga who kind of turned turned that game in France's favour. And if it wasn't for kind of an unbelievable save from um, from Emmy Martinez, kind of Colomwani would be going down and kind of uh, in in kind of football lore. But he's kind of continued that World Cup form um, back in the Bundesliga. Going back to just slightly before the winter break, he scored four goals in his last five Bundesliga matches. He also has an incredible 10 assists in the Bundesliga this season. He leads the Bundesliga in that category, which suggests he's a kind of a complete centre forward that um, Chelsea will be spending a quarter of a billion on the summer. But yeah. I think he's an ideal <laughs> opportunity to add to those totals against a terrible Hertha team who've conceded nine uh, nine goals in their last three matches. They sacked their uh, sporting director, Freddie Bobic, at the weekend. They're kind of 13 they're really struggling that their coach on the verge of being sacked so it's an ideal opportunity for Colin Wani to add to his total and he's a I think a very back of the price here at, at uh, 263. I have very rarely seen a striker do to Dio Upamecano what Colin Wani did last week. Upamecano is usually really aggressive really front foot and against Colin Wani he was scared to death. He backed off him, he backed off him. You look at the goal that Colin Mouani scored, didn't want to get near him in the penalty area. And that comes from training, I think, in that French World Cup squad because he saw what he was capable of in training and matches and thought, I can normally deal with anybody, but I cannot handle this guy. And I think that was a sign as much of anything as just how well Colin Mouani's done this season. Now, this is all very well, all this stuff, but actually... I've been waiting for it. The guy's been waiting for it. You have as well. It's time for Marco Hare's Scott Watch. Oh, aye. It's Scott Watch. Mark, bring us the latest delights from Caledonia, please. <laughs> Um, well, just a quick apology. I was I was crushed last weekend because Stenhouse Mule let us down um, with their first clean sheet since July to deny us to deny us a winner on Scottwatch. But uh, I'm not going to abandon the greatest league in the world, of course, just not. because of that. So we're staying in Scottish League Two this weekend for a game between East Fife and Stirling, taking yes. place at Bayview Stadium, which is actually one of the most picturesque stadiums uh, in the UK, location-wise. If you Google it, uh, it's right on the coast, overlooking what. I'm kind of guessing is the North Sea. I don't really know, actually. But um, oh, that, that's your job on the tourist board, gone there. <laughs> <laughs> it must be the North Sea, but anyway, uh, I'm sure I'll find out in the in the Twitter mentions when I get off this. If if I'm wrong, I but, hope so. Um, 
Yeah, East Fife are in, in mid-table. They've lost back-to-back games. They've only won twice at home, actually, all season. And they're hosting a Sterling team who are, who are second and only four points off the top with a game in hand. They've won 10 of the last 13. They are the form team in the fourth tier. They're also the top goal scorers as well. But the majority of their best work occurs at home. They are vulnerable on the way, on the, on the road, I should say. Um, and actually, despite their, their position, their lofty position, they've only kept three clean sheets in 19 this season, none of which have come away from home. Yet they've only failed to score three times this season uh, and twice in the last 18 because one of them was on the opening day. So 68% of their matches have gone over two and a half goals and their matches are averaging 3.21 goals per game. Uh, East Fife haven't been their best at Bayview, but they have scored in 17 of 22 all season, including home and away games against Sterling. And those matches ended in 2-1 and 3-1 defeats for East Fife. Uh, they've only managed three clean sheets themselves all season. Their matches are averaging 3.05 goals with 73% hitting over two and a half goals. So it means actually if we combine the two teams' records so far in Scottish League 2, we've got 29 winning bets for over two and a half goals from 41 Scottish League 2 matches. That's a 71% hit rate and we're getting 1.8 on over two and a half goals between East Fife and Sterling. So that will be my selection. Wonderful. And the fabulous features just keep on coming because it is time for the world-famous podcast Treble, a betting feature so revered that I heard the only reason Beyonce's added UK dates to a world tour is so she can talk to Mark about Scottish League 2. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, how this works is each of the guys come up with a selection from the weekend's action and delightful traders like Emmett wrap them up in a boosted treble. And Emmett, I will start with you. I will go. Yeah, I, I'm a bit like Jay Kerr. I'm almost surprised. Surprised you came to me first. Um, <laughs> I'll keep you on your toes. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll go with both teams to score in PSG v Toulouse. Um, the just the, the reasoning being here, I think PSG actually really aren't aren't playing well at all. They've only one clean sheet in their last six matches, whereas Toulouse mm. have scored 15 goals in their last five in, in their last five matches. And I think just that this might be a more competitive game than kind of uh, PSG being kind of 133 at home suggests. I've kind of spoke about kind of how the World Cup might have a kind of a might have a kind of a negative effect on on. on PSG. I was just surprised to see both teams to score. Um, is is currently around one eighty three in the exchange, so around eight to eleven for our accumulator purposes. Lovely stuff, uh, Jake. Let's go with you. I will take Brentford to beat Southampton. All the wow. reasons we spoke about earlier. Yeah, lovely. No psychodrama at all. And Mark, take us home. Yeah, I'll, I'll take Union Berlin to, to beat Mainz. Uh, I just think the price is, is really, really nice and attractive and it should boost the, the treble price up quite nicely to um, an even money shot. Nice meaty treble to finish the show. That's all we have time for on this edition of Football Only Better. Please do remember to gamble responsibly. Keep an eye out, by the way, for a special Champions League preview that'll be coming up soon. And as the Ch- Cheltenham Festival gets ever closer, easy for me to say, uh, you can listen to Cheltenham Only Better as well. Lots of preview content, by the way, on betting.betfair.com. From Mark, from Emmett, from Jake and from me, it's goodbye for now. Those defeats came against Bayern and Dortmund last season, who ended up being the top two in the league. So, yeah, Mainz hammered Bochum 5-2 at home last season, but everyone knows Bochum are woeful travellers, so wouldn't wouldn't read too much into that. <laughs> uh, and that was Mainz's only uh, their fourth league win since August as well. 